Our scripture reading tonight is from Psalm 17. Emmanuel, we've uh, been going through the Psalms, and Psalm 17 happens to be the next one. It also happens to be the first of the Psalms that is explicitly called in the superscription a prayer of David. Um, Obviously, other Psalms are prayers too, but it seems uh, that we are meant to see this Psalm especially as something of a model for prayer uh, given to us inspired by the Spirit of Christ that God uh, teaches us here, as he does in Matthew chapter 6, how it is that we should pray. So as we gather tonight for this joint uh, prayer service, let us uh, give our attention to Psalm 17. David says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer. From lips free of deceit, from your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity with their mouths. They speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear As a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. For men by your hand, O Lord. For men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. I should say I've titled this sermon in the bulletin, Keep Me as the Apple of Your Eye, but uh, submitted that well in advance. I'm not sure that really captures where I want to take this sermon. If I were to rename it, I think I'd call it something like with David in the school of prayer. With David in the school of prayer as God's king here uh, teaches us a method of prayer that applies not only to his situation then, but to the cosmic conflict in which we, the king's people, continue to find ourselves. For those of you uh, from adoration who have not been with us as we've been making our way through the Psalms, we 
uh, made the point very early on as we looked at Psalm 2 that uh, Psalm 2 along with, with Psalm 1, those, those two psalms sort of introduce the, the whole Psalter to us. These themes from, from Psalm 2, that's the, the theme where it talks about how the, the, the psalm, where it talks about the nation's rage and that the people's plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed. These, these themes from that psalm, they, they come up all throughout the Psalter. This theme of, of God's king against whom the nations rage and the people's plot in vain, who the Lord will set on Zion his holy hill. In fact, one commentator has said it's almost as if the entire Psalter is, is but an extended reflection on that second psalm. It, it's, its themes are so pervasive throughout the Psalter. Of these enemies who, who are constantly attacking God's king, and yet the Lord will hear his prayer and will exalt him and set him on his holy hill. He will vindicate him in the presence of his enemies. And David, because of the, the promise that God has made in 2 Samuel 7, in fact, the promise that he's reflecting on in Psalm 2, he, he understands that, that this messianic king is going to come from his line. It's the promise that God has made to him. And so throughout the Psalms, David um, presents himself in in such a way that anticipates the experience of his son. David is a type of Christ. That's why the New Testament so often is taking these Psalms, especially the Psalms of David, and applying them all over the book of Hebrews and Acts and Romans and, and the Gospels to the life of Christ. David is a type of the one who will come from his line. And so the cosmic conflict in which David finds himself, which is ultimately the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, this war that the kingdom of darkness is waging on the messianic seed in David's loins, that war is the same war in which you and I find ourselves. We know something of the conflict that David here speaks of is those who are united to David's son. And so as we find ourselves in the midst of this same battle, we can learn from David how it is that we're to pray. We learn in this Psalm 3 uh, things that we're to keep in mind as we pray. We pray, first of all, on the basis of the king's righteousness. We pray, second, in view of the kingdom conflict And third, we pray in assurance of the kingdom's coming glory. The basis of the king's righteousness in view of the kingdom conflict and the assurance of the kingdom's coming glory. This is how David teaches us to pray. Let us sit now with David in the school of prayer. First, he teaches us to pray on the basis of the king's righteousness. As you look at these 15 verses, um, you, can, you can sort of divide this psalm into three sections um, based on, on three sets of appeals that begin in verse 1, then in verse 6, and verse 13, where David asks God to hear him, to answer him, and then to arise on his behalf. And so this, this first section where David the king asks God to hear him, you notice that David claims that his cause is just. He says in verse 1, Lord, hear a just cause and attend to my cry. He says that his lips are free from deceit. That's part of of why God should hear him. It says in verse 2, behold the right. 
It's as if he's saying, behold me, the righteous one. And he goes on in verse 3 and says, Lord, you have tried my heart. You have tested me in the night and found nothing. I've purposed that my mouth will not transgress. I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths, and my feet have not slipped. These first five verses of Psalm 17, this is the basis on which David brings his prayer to God. He says that his cause is just, and his lips are righteous. But of course, if, if you've ever read past 2 Samuel chapter 10 or so into chapter 11, we, we know some things about David that, that make us wonder how it is that he could say this. How, it, how is it that he can make these claims that he does in, in verses 1 through 5? So I think there's two principles that we need to understand as we read these sections of the Psalms. There'll be another one in Psalm 18. Think of, of Psalm 119. Earlier in the Psalter, Psalm 7, as we come to these portions of the Psalms where David is pleading his righteousness, the first thing that we need to keep in mind is, is that David is speaking of his, his relative righteousness. He's speaking in terms of the claims that are being made against him. The, the very next Psalm, Psalm 18, it, it tells us in the superscription is written in the context of, of David's conflict with Saul. So I think it's reasonable to, to assume that that's the context also of this Psalm. And as you think of that conflict between David and Saul, David could say that the claims being made against him were not true, that he did nothing subversive to Saul's kingship, he did nothing violent to bring about Saul's demise. In fact, he had several opportunities to kill him and said he would not touch the Lord's anointed. And David did nothing malicious to Saul's house. And so that way, David was righteous. And he makes this, this prayer to God in, in the context of this conflict, not as a guilty man, but as innocent. But of course, the second thing that we need to keep in mind when we read these Psalms of David is that David is also a type of Christ. And so often in the Psalms, the, the experience that David describes of, of himself goes beyond his own experience in a way that points to his son. We said Psalm 2 is the, the theme of the Psalter, how the nations will rage and the peoples plot in vain against God's Davidic king, but God will raise him up in glory. And this Psalm 2 theme of, of suffering unto glory is then depicted in David's experience so that his own experience throughout the Psalms points to that of his son. You just think of a place like Psalm 22 where the intense suffering, even unto death, that David describes, where he says that, that his hands are pierced and, and that God eventually saves him and lifts him up from death. Now, those experiences clearly go beyond what David himself experienced. But by the inspiration of Christ's spirit, David speaks as a prophet so that his experience of suffering unto glory prefigures his son. It's the same thing in the very next psalm, Psalm 18, which truly tells of of David's conflict with Saul, and yet tells of it through poetic hyperbole and in ways that go far beyond what we read in 1 Samuel of that conflict. For instance, nowhere in 1 Samuel do we read of the earth reeling and rocking and mountains trembling and smoke going out from God's nostrils when he saved David from Saul. And yet that's what we read in verses 6 and following of Psalm 18. 
a, a poetic, even prophetic account of David's situation, that in relaying what happens to him goes beyond him and points to his son. As the New Testament makes clear in the way that it quotes Psalm 18 twice and applies it to Jesus. And I would submit to you that we see the same thing going on in Psalm 17. In fact, this psalm is sandwiched between two psalms that the New Testament applies to Christ, Psalm 16 and Psalm 18, telling us that ultimately David's experience is pointing to that of Jesus. We take Psalm 17 the same way. That what David says of his own righteousness, while, while true of himself relatively, goes beyond himself in a way that points to the one who his experience throughout the psalms is meant to picture. Jesus, the king of Psalms, Psalm 2, who, who David's righteous cause typifies, do David's claims of innocence prefigure. The writer says, Psalm 17 so stresses the quality of righteousness that no other member of the human race could pray this psalm in such literal truth but Christ. This psalm is picturing for us the righteousness of of the king. It is the voice of Christ we hear speaking through his forerunner David saying, Lord, listen to my righteous cause. Give ear to my prayer from lips that are free of deceit. Let your eyes behold the righteous one as you test my heart and find nothing amiss. For I've avoided the ways of the violent and have not sinned in the least, but am holy, harmless, and undefiled. I am the righteous man of Psalm 15. I'm the man of Psalm 1. So hear me as that blessed man who alone can sojourn in your presence. The Spirit of Christ is here speaking through David. And what this means for us is that even though we cannot say that we have always avoided the violent... We cannot say that that we have have never transgressed with our mouth, even though you and I cannot say that our lips are free from deceit and that if God had a moral scanner to detect every movement, desire, thought, and affection of our heart, he'd find nothing amiss, even though we cannot say that, because we are united to the one who can, and God imputes his righteousness to us, we can pray Psalm 17, as we do Say as we do in Lord's Day 45, even though we fully recognize our need and misery and humble ourselves in view of God's majestic presence, we rest on this unshakable foundation that even though we do not deserve it, God will surely listen to our prayer because of Christ our Lord. We pray on the basis of His righteousness. As we sing in in number 457, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, thy beauty are my glorious dress. That's what we're saying when we come to God and pray to him in Jesus' name. That even though we do not deserve to be heard by God, even though we are those in Psalm 14 who do not seek after God, those of Psalm 15 who may not dwell in God's presence, by faith union with Christ, the one who can, we may enter in and bring our petitions before him on the basis of the righteousness of our King. So as we pray tonight, we we don't bring our petitions before him because we deserve to be heard in and of ourselves. But we bring them in Christ. 
We bring them the basis of the righteousness of our king. That's, that's the first thing that Psalm 17 teaches us about prayer. And as David goes on in, in verses 6 through 12, teaches us to pray not just on the basis of the king's righteousness, but also in view of the kingdom conflict. Where everything that he's just said now in verses 1 through 5 is, is applied to where the conflict in which the king finds himself, where, where David says, Lord, incline your ear to me and show me your steadfast love. For the wicked all around me, they they seek to do me violence. My deadly enemies surround me on every side. And so in the midst of this conflict, David calls on God to wondrously show his steadfast love and to keep him as the apple of his eye. And it's interesting because he makes this prayer, he even speaks in verse 11 in the plural, saying that the enemies surround our steps and they want to cast us to the ground in a way that, that opens up the application of this psalm not just to one individual, but to the king and his people. Psalms scholar Palmer Robertson uh, points out this, this theme in so many of the psalms that as it fares with the king, so it fares with the king's people. And, and to the people who are united to the righteous king in Psalm 17 who typifies Christ, uh, these faithful subjects of the king suffer in the same way that David describes in verses 9 through 12. Where the enemies of the king who, who rage and plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed do violence against God's people. Surrounding them as deadly enemies who close their hearts to pity. Speak arrogantly with their mouths. It says like lions lurking in ambush, eager to tear. This was the experience of David and his people. This will be the experience of David's son. And it continues to be the experience of those who were united to him. As Christians in Nigeria, Sudan, Afghanistan, and India, North Korea, know the kind of suffering that David describes in verses 9 through 12. And so one of the things that a psalm like this teaches us to do is how to pray for them. How to pray in view of the kingdom conflict between the nations who rage and plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed. And and how to pray that God would wondrously show his steadfast love. That's the main petition that that David makes in this section of the psalm. He says, Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. He says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do violence. That's the king's prayer. Pray that God would save the king and in so doing would preserve and increase his church. This, this is a Lord's Day 48, second petition of the Lord's Prayer, Kingdom Come Prayer. Which is not only prayed on the basis of the righteousness of the king, but appeals to the covenant promises that God has made to the king. As we see in verse 7 where, where he says, Wondrously show your steadfast love. This is, again, that Hebrew word hesed, covenant love, covenant faithfulness. He's saying, wondrously show yourself to be faithful to the covenant promises that you've made concerning my house 
and my kingdom. And keep me as the apple of your eye. It's a phrase that um, is, is from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Actually, this, this phrase about not only the, the apple of the eye, but also being hidden under the shadow of your wings. Both are from Deuteronomy 32 in the, the Song of Moses. Where God calls his son Israel the apple of his eye. The object of his affection. And David here, as the head of God's covenant people, and therefore God's son, applies this term to himself and says, keep me, Lord, as the apple of your eye and hide me under the shadow of your wings. He's praying this as God's king and God's son of whom God has made covenant promises, saying, Lord, in light of those promises that you have made, don't let the wicked who do violence destroy me. But you have said that my kingdom will last forever. So don't let these deadly enemies who who close their hearts to pity prevail, but arise and subdue them and deliver my life from the wicked by your sword. This is battle imagery. This is a prayer for divine intervention. This is a prayer for divine justice. Again, this is not prayed out of vindictive, uh, vengeful, self-absorption. But verse 11, this is prayed with a concern for all of God's people. Uh, This is prayed, verse 1, with a concern for justice. This is prayed, verses 7 and 8, with a concern that God would keep the covenant promises that he has made. David is, is praying God's promises back to him. And in so doing, is teaching us also to pray for justice. To pray like the widow in Luke chapter 18. That the Lord would indeed bring justice. To pray that the enemies who hate God's king, and who hate God's kingdom, would not prevail. Lord's Day 48, that God would, would uh, take every, every conspiracy against his holy word and, and against his people and destroy it. The language of this psalm, that he would confront and subdue them and ruin their wicked plots for the glory of his name. This is a righteous prayer to pray. That's the point of verses 1 through 5. That as David is praying this, it is a just cause. God can, he can test his heart and he can see that David is not aligning himself with the ways of the violent, but in fact, by entrusting himself to God, is avoiding their ways. That's the thing about a psalm like this. He, he, he says, Lord, you know as I'm praying this, I'm not aligning myself with the ways of the violent, but David, by praying this, is refusing to do so. Because you think of it in the context of the conflict with Saul, on many occasions he has the opportunity to take Saul's life and says he will not, but prays that the Lord would avenge him. That too is what we are doing. As we consider the needs of the persecuted church, as we consider God's people throughout the world and pray that he would bring justice. And of course we must pray this Um, Also with verse 3, saying, Lord, test my heart and see if there's any wicked way within me. But so long as this prayer is not prayed in a vindictive spirit, we can and must pray it. 
that God would arise to confront and subdue those who close their hearts to pity so that his people would not be cast to the ground. That's what David prays. He doesn't just pray it here. He prays it in some 30 or 40 psalms throughout the Psalter. And as he prays it, the context in which he prays it and the context in which we pray it are not that far off. Again, in both cases, it is the enemies of the king, namely Christ, who hate him and therefore hate his people and close their hearts to pity who are seeking to destroy them. And so David teaches us here how to pray for Christ's suffering saints. David teaches us here how to pray for the church under the cross. You, you may not feel as you're gathered here tonight, and in fact, you probably don't feel like David in this psalm, but you pray it on behalf of your brothers, taking up the cause of, of Christ's suffering saints throughout the world and pleading on their behalf. That's one of the things that we're gathered here tonight to do, to to put ourselves in the position of others and plead their anguish before God for them. We may not be in the thick of, of verses 6 through 12, but Christians in Syria are. Christians in Nigeria and North Sudan are. And so we vicariously adopt the position of our brothers and sisters and pray verses 6 through 12 for them. And verse 13, that God would arise, confront, subdue, and deliver. Whether through temporal judgment or, or the conversion of those enemies or whether finally at the last day in whatever way he sees fit, we pray that God would arise. That as we pray this prayer not knowing when or how God might answer, we nevertheless prayed in confidence that he one day will. As these last three verses teach us to pray, all of this in the assurance of the kingdom's coming glory. It's the last thing we learn from David in the school of prayer, to pray in the assurance of the kingdom's coming glory. We pray in view of the kingdom conflict, We pray on the basis of the king's righteousness and as we pray in the name of Jesus for the triumph of his cause and for the relief of his suffering saints, we do so in the assurance of the future hope of these last three verses. Where David says that the wicked who afflict God's people are are men of the world whose portion is in this life. He says that they may be satisfied now with treasure, but they will leave their abundance in this life, while God's people, when they awake, will be satisfied with his likeness and behold his face in righteousness. That's what David reminds the church at the end of this psalm, that whether or not God answers this prayer in this life, That whether or not David answers David's prayer in this life, he one day will, when the prayed for judgment will dawn of the coming age, when the wicked who prosper in this life, these men of the world will be judged, and God's people who've suffered will be crowned with glory, and he'll confess their names, and all tears will be wiped away as their cause will be acknowledged as the very cause of the Son of God. It is a gracious reward. He will make them possess a glory such that the heart of man could never imagine. As we confess in our Belgian confession, that's what we see in verse 15, the hope of glory. 
where the king, surrounded by these deadly enemies who want to cast him to the ground and wish to tear him apart like a lion, the king says, when I awake, Lord, I'll be satisfied with your likeness. This language of awaking is Old Testament language for the resurrection, for the life after death. Instead of being a man of the world, like those in verse 14, David understands that he is a stranger and exile on earth whose portion is not in this life, but the life to come. No matter what happens to him in this present situation, God will wondrously show his steadfast love by allowing him to behold God's face in righteousness and to be satisfied with his likeness. This is a confident assertion in the face of death, the hope of resurrection glory. This is the very same confidence that David spoke of in Psalm 16.10. Peter quotes in Acts 2 and says he was speaking of the resurrection of Christ. This is the same confidence that David will speak of in Psalm 18, verses 4 to 6, where though rejected by man, he'll be accepted by God. David teaches us that as we pray for the church in the midst of of kingdom conflict, we do so with an eye toward kingdom come, knowing that whatever happens in this life, our suffering will one day give way to glory. For is that not the pattern of David's son? Who, though surrounded by enemies who made untrue accusations against him and thirsted for his blood, though from early in his ministry there were plots to to do him violence and to end his life, even as is true of David in this psalm. And even though he was eventually handed over to those enemies who tore him apart like a lion, that's the very language that Psalm 22 uses of Christ, nevertheless, God did hear his prayer and kept him as the apple of his eye and raised him up. He was the righteous one of this psalm whose prayer God heard, who could not be held by death, but awoke with a glorified body to see God's face in righteousness. As Peter Holtfleur writes, verse 15 was fully experienced by Christ in his resurrection. And on account of it, every believer will behold God's face in life beyond the grave and most completely in the great resurrection on the new earth. When the dead will be raised, the world will be healed, the curse will be gone, the serpent will be crushed, the gates of Eden will be opened, and all of God's children will be embraced in his arms as the apple of his eye as he wipes every tear away. That, beloved, is is the ultimate hope of God's people. That's the ultimate hope of Psalm 17. And it's with that end in sight that that we pray this prayer to God, saying, Thy kingdom come, saying, Come, Lord Jesus, longing for this beatific vision when we'll be satisfied with his likeness. As 1 John chapter 3 says, We will be like him. We shall see him as he is. That's our hope. It is to be the great longing of God's people as we pray to him that we will see him. We pray on the basis of the king's righteousness. 
We pray in view of the kingdom conflict as we and Christ's people share in his suffering. We pray in the assurance of the kingdom's coming glory. We'll behold his face in righteousness and be satisfied with his likeness. So as we pray tonight, we pray that God's saints throughout the world would be upheld by this Psalm 1715 hope. Pray that suffering saints among us would be upheld by this hope. We pray that those who are nearing death or those with loved ones who are nearing death would be upheld by this hope. We pray that we, the people of God, would not be men of the earth whose portion is in this life. But like the king in Psalm 17, like Christ himself would fix our eyes on the glory to come. That, by the way, is why we give generously to these causes that we've prayed for tonight. That's why we're gathered here on this this beautiful spring night to offer our prayers and petitions to the Lord because we are not to be men of the world whose portion is in this life. Like Christ, we fix our eyes on the glory to come. We pray for the advance of this gospel of Christ the King whose righteousness not only allows us to enter into God's presence now as we pray to him, but also in that day when our faith shall be sight. We pray that many more would have the righteousness of this king imputed to him as this gospel goes to the ends of the earth, that they too would be brought into the presence of God. And as we pray all of these things, we pray it with an eye toward that day, knowing that when God reveals himself to us and we behold his face and see him as he is, that that prayer of Psalm 17, 7 will then be answered, that he will wondrously show his steadfast love. It is our hope, that is our prayer.